We're going to start with Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then Romans 6, and we're going to read this this chapter. Uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives... He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we lift up this, this hour to you and we thank you for the power of your word and for your precious and magnificent promises that, uh, that are life to us, Father. We, we thank you for the, the power of what our baptism, believer's baptism, pictures and proclaims and celebrates. And we pray that you would keep our attention uh, earnest this morning, that we would, we would focus on what you have to say to us through these great passages and others. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. This is the second of three uh, messages on baptism. And uh, I wanted to begin by just kind of retracing what the three, the layout of the three messages. The first one last week is what baptism is. This time, what baptism does. And then finally, next week, who should be baptized and when. Um, when we talked last week about what baptism is, we covered a few different things. And the, the, the one that I, that I think is very important for us to grasp is that baptism is a memorial like all of the memorials that we see in the Old Testament and the few that, that we were given in the New Testament. Um, Memorial means a reminder, a re-minder. It is to bring something that is vitally important back to the forefront of our minds every time that we, that we observe the memorial. And, and then to prompt us to live and to act in keeping with this truth that, that, the, that the observance of the memorial is pointing to. And again, there are many of these in Scripture. The symbol the ceremony, is never the same thing as that to which it points. The symbol is lesser, and it is a metaphor, it's a picture, but it points to something far greater than itself. And that's something that, again, we must understand in order to understand the ceremonies that God has given to us and the, the reminders that God has given to us. We talked briefly about baptism before the New Testament. Didn't have a lot to say about that. There were, there were sects, sects of Judaism, uh, branches of Judaism that practiced a kind of baptism, especially with Gentiles who had come to believe, to embrace the, the, the Jewish faith. But the problem with those baptisms is that they focused on the person being baptized as if that person was the cause of the change that had occurred in his or her heart. Uh, in other words, they were celebrating and remembering something that hadn't happened because we are incapable of transforming our own hearts and making ourselves right with God. And then we talked briefly about John's baptism. And the thing mostly that I wanted us to see there is that John came as a herald, a pointer himself to one greater than himself. And he said that exactly. Um, his baptism was not to proclaim a sinner's salvation, but to prepare hearts for the one who would soon come to save sinners. And then we talk briefly again about the baptism, about John's baptism of Jesus. And the one thing that we saw in Jesus' statement to John in those passages is he said, permit this to be done, even though it doesn't fit with the whole paradigm of baptism because Jesus is, doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to be saved. He doesn't need to have pictured what we need to have pictured in baptism. But he said to John, permit this 
that all righteousness may be fulfilled. That all righteousness may be fulfilled. And we're going to see what he meant by that more profoundly today, this morning, than we did last time. And then lastly, believer's baptism. And that's where our focus is. A visible, physical ceremony that pictures, proclaims, and celebrates something invisible that has already happened. If it hasn't already happened, then the symbol is pointless. This is not something, it doesn't celebrate and remember something that the person being baptized did, but instead something that God did in the heart of the person being baptized. It's a celebration of God's work, not man's work. As we saw last week in Acts 2 and Acts 10, believer's baptism is a public proclamation of the repentance and faith that God has miraculously brought about in a sinner's heart. And I said that as I understand it, and I'm quoting a professor that I dearly loved at Dallas Seminary named Stan Toussaint, repentance in this context, repentance is turning from whatever has been keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ to believing in Jesus Christ. The word repent simply means to turn from one thing to another. The repentance that, this is, that baptism declares and proclaims and celebrates is turning from whatever was keeping you from trusting in Jesus as your one and only Savior to trusting in Him alone. That's the first thing that we're going to, in our discussion of what baptism does, we've already kind of touched on part of that. All right. What does baptism do? Well, first, the ceremony. We've already established. The ceremony doesn't do what it declares. It reminds us. It celebrates what it what it, it uh, is pointing to. It pictures, proclaims, and celebrates the substance. So what is the substance? What does the New Testament tell us about the real baptism? The baptism that Jesus does. John said, I came to baptize in water, but there's one coming who will baptize in the Spirit and with fire. The one who baptizes in the Spirit is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, does, what happens when that baptism, that real baptism occurs that we celebrate with the ceremony? Well, the first thing is the one we've just been talking about, and that is repentance and faith. It is the turning of a heart to trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sin and for the free gift of eternal life that no human being will ever earn and will never deserve from God. In case there's anyone here who isn't sure about this, beloved from cover to cover, the Bible makes it crystal clear that the one and only thing that any of us deserves from our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God is eternal condemnation. Some churches will run you right out the door for saying that. Praise God, this one won't because it's what the Bible declares. It is God's work that turns a heart to Christ. Those who, dead people don't do anything. And we are lost and dead in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2. Children of wrath. And it is only by the working of God that we come to Jesus Christ to trust in Him. The second thing, the second aspect or facet of the, of the true baptism, the real baptism, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The passages that we looked at last time told us that the baptism Jesus accomplishes in every believer is baptism by Jesus 
in the Holy Spirit into Christ. By Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, into Christ. Again, John said, he said, I come to baptize in water, Jesus baptizes in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, baptism in the Holy Spirit puts the Holy Spirit into us. Not the ceremony, doesn't, that doesn't do that. The ceremony celebrates that that has, done, has been done. The baptism that Jesus accomplishes in the heart of every believer is He places the, the Holy Spirit in that person to dwell in that person's heart forever. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that, that when you hear the, the message of the Gospel, the truth of your salvation, you believe that message. When you believe that message, God seals you. He seals you by putting His Holy Spirit in you as the down payment of your, in, your eternal inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, He gives you this down payment, this indwelling Holy Spirit as the seal that you are signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into the courts of God, into the kingdom of God and His presence. And that's guaranteed if God has brought you to faith and sealed you with His Spirit. It's guaranteed. Not because of you, but because of Christ. Okay. Baptism in the Spirit puts the Spirit into us. This is not the same thing as what the Bible describes as filling the filling of the Spirit. It's not something that... Bapti the, the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit is not something that happens on special occasions and only for a while. It is permanent. And it happens when we come to believe in the Lord Jesus. The second thing is that, uh, so I said we are baptized by Jesus into the Holy Spirit and we are in the Holy Spirit and baptized into Christ. Baptized into Christ. We're going to look at two facets of what the Bible declares about this, what it means that we are baptized into Christ. Two things. First, we are baptized into the body of Christ, the community of the saints. And secondly, we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. We're going to look at those two facets. Under the old covenant that was given through Moses, the ritual or ceremony or memorial by which a man was welcomed into the covenant community was circumcision. It was only men who received this memorial. But both Testament, I should say it was only boys by design on the eighth day after they were born, uh, once the first round occurred. But both Testaments of God's Word make it very clear that real membership, even in that Old Testament covenant community, was not through a circumcision made with hands. But it was by the circumcision of the heart. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. God doesn't... The, the symbol does not equal the substance. What God cares about is, is a heart that is set apart to Him. If you read the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 10, you'll see that a circumcised heart is a heart that loves and fears and submits to God and that lives out the love of God toward one's neighbor, toward other 
members of the covenant community and those who aren't in yet and should be brought in. The physical ceremony of circumcision left an enduring mark on the body of every Jewish male. That mark was intended to serve as, again, a picture, proclamation, and reminder of, of the setting apart of that, that man's heart to God. Now, if you, if you circumcise an eight-day-old child, you're not accomplishing anything in his heart yet. So circumcision was a picture of something that was hoped for, that was intended, that was desired. Uh, that's not the same as baptism. Circumcision pictured something longed for, hoped for. Baptism pictures something that's already happened. Very important. Uh, when Jesus came, mankind got to meet face to face the one who alone causes real change in the heart of a human being. And ever since Jesus came under the new covenant in His atoning blood, baptism is the ceremony through which any person, whether that person was formerly a Jew or a Gentile, is welcomed into the new covenant community that is the church of Jesus Christ. That was just as true of circumcision, <laughs> and that is this. It's not the ceremony that accomplishes the covenant, the membership in the covenant community. It's the transformation that God does in the heart of, a, of the one who, who comes to trust only in Him. Now, what that means is that historically, most of the people who were circumcised were not actually part of God's covenant community. They were only part in, the, in a very superficial sense. But not when it came to the heart. And that was, God isn't interested in superficial things. He's all about the heart. He's all about creating a people for his own possession. Now, it should not be a surprise to us then that in Colossians chapter 2, the real circumcision and the real baptism are spoken of together in the same sentence. In Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to give you all of verses 8 through 12 for context. Listen to this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If you ever hear someone say the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God, point out this verse. There are quite a few, but this one... In Him, all the fullness of Godness dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete, and He is head over all rule and all authority. And in Him, listen, in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through, through faith in the working of God. Through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. This is a stunning declaration, is it not? You know what this is saying? It's saying that real circumcision is real baptism. They're not two things, they're one. Isn't it? It's, it, let me read it again. 
in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. A circumcision of the heart done by God. You with me? I'm not making this stuff up. Verse 11 is stunning. Paul refers to the circumcision that is made without hands as the circumcision of Christ. Now, grammatically speaking, that's what we call a subjective genitive. It means that what comes after the word of is the one that's acting, that's doing the thing. And so, it means the circumcision that Christ does. The circumcision of Christ is the circumcision that is accomplished by Christ. In the heart of every man, woman, or child who believes in Him. The real setting apart of any person's heart to God in every age of mankind has always been the work of Christ. And Christ has always been working to save. That work makes us members in God's true covenant community, the community that is made up of all who share in the faith of Abraham. In Genesis 15.6, it says Abraham believed God and God reckoned that faith to him as righteousness. Just like he does you and me when we trust in Christ. And, and I, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but people struggle with that. They say, well, Abraham didn't know about Jesus. You know what Abraham knew? He knew a gospel promise of God that from his body would come one who would, through whom every family on earth would be blessed. And he believed that promise. That was a gospel promise. What made it a gospel promise is that it is fulfilled only by Jesus. There are many such promises. The promises made to King David about a ruler who would reign on his throne forever and ever. When David believed that promise, he was believing a gospel promise promise because it is fulfilled only in Jesus. So, guys, don't get hung up on the fact that people before Jesus came, people didn't know the name of Jesus. But they were told about the promises that would be fulfilled in the, in the long-promised Messiah and King. Does that make sense? Okay. Ever since Jesus was, was baptized as the first among many brethren, the symbol, the visible, tangible ceremony that has proclaimed and pictured every believer's membership in the new covenant community, that is the church, is baptism. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells the church that one of the most foundational realities that that, that ceremony of believer's baptism pictures, proclaims, and celebrates is that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been clothed in Christ. Clothed in Christ. By the miraculous working of God. And you have been joined together with every other person who has ever come to faith in Jesus through the true, bapti the true baptism that Jesus immediately accomplishes in the heart of everyone who trusts in Him alone. That baptism that puts the Spirit in us we who believe have all been made one. We who believe have all been made one. Every wall of division that existed between us because of distinctions in race or economic station in life or even because of gender has been torn down in Christ and done away with once and for all. The divisions have been destroyed. 
Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That does not mean God doesn't know the difference between a boy and a girl. It means that God has destroyed every division between men and women and made us all heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, all who believe. When a believer gets baptized, uh, right, let, me, let me make this point, the powerful exhortation that is clearly implied in Galatians chapter 3 is that now that you have been baptized into the covenant community of God, live as one. God has made you one, now be one. Don't live as a divided people. And this, this is huge. It is emphatic. It is repeated over and over. Uh, man, I wish I had more time this morning, but th this is just, this call to unity is so very central to our lives as believers. And when a believer gets baptized in water, when we dunk a believer up there, one of the miraculous realities that that physical ceremony pictures, proclaims, and celebrates is that person's oneness now and for all eternity with every other person who believes in Jesus together as one new man in Christ. I want to read Galatians 3 verses 24 to 29 again. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Got to do one more little rabbit trail. There are ladies here who say, well, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a son of God. Let me explain. He's, talk, he's talking about inheritance. It's talking about the right of the firstborn son. And it's saying what this is declaring is that every man and every woman who comes to faith in Jesus Christ gets the same inheritance. We get what belongs to the one and only Son of God. Because we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8. That's why it says we're all sons of God in Christ. Are you with me? That's what that's about. What a marvelous grace we celebrate every time we get to share the experience of believer's baptism. And what an exceedingly important thing for all of us to remember always that God has called us to live as one because He has made us one. We don't create unity. All we do, all we do is live out the unity that God has created. Finally, being baptized into Jesus, into Christ, means being baptized into His death and resurrection. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to consider the greatest liberation that any human being will ever experience in this earthly life. That liberation is another 
facet of what believer's baptism celebrates and pictures. And that liberation is every believer's freedom from the enslaving power of sin. Romans chapter 6 is as practical and as relevant a passage as you will encounter anywhere in the Bible. Many people read it and they see it as this kind of dry theology when what it really is, it is the difference between a joyful, powerful Christian life and a wimpy, miserable Christian life. That there's nobody on earth more miserable than a miserable Christian. I'm going to do a brief flyover of the first five chapters of Romans before we examine chapter 6 because Paul's build-up to chapter 6 is critically important for understanding one of the most enabling promises and transforming commands in the whole Bible. The first five chapters of Romans present the most focused explanation in the Bible about how sinful human beings become justified, declared righteous, in the eyes of our perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Paul knew very well that what he proclaimed in those five chapters stands in opposition to everything that human beings have ever conceived of as a way for men to be acceptable to God. Paul knew that what he was writing was scandalous by design. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul declares the universal corruption and fallenness of all humanity, whether it is a Gentile condemned by his conscience or a Jew condemned by the law, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good, not even one. Those are Paul's words given by God. By the standard of God's law, which reveals God's holy character, every mouth is closed and every man is left silent with no defense at all to offer to God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means put on display. Just as the law and the Old Testament prophets said it would be. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. It is only by the propitiation in the blood of Christ, the one satisfactory payment for sin at the cross, that any sinner's debt is paid to God and the sinner is counted as righteous entirely apart from works of the law. The one God, who is the God of both Jew and Gentile, will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes what I believe to be one of the most scandalously unambiguous proclamations ever heard on earth. He says in verses 4 and 5, to the one who works... His wage is not reckoned as a favor. It's not credited to him as a favor, but as what is due, right? If you work, you expect to get paid. And then he says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, to him, faith 
is credited, reckoned as righteousness, just like with Abraham in Genesis 15.6. Did you get that? To the ungodly who does not work, but believes in him who justifies ungodly sinners, his faith is credited to him as righteousness on the merits of Christ. And, and his faith is in Christ, and it is the merits of Christ that make him righteous. And none other. It is only that we are clothed in Christ that makes us able to stand before a perfectly holy God. His righteousness is the only righteousness that will ever do. This was true of Abraham before the law. It was true of David under the law. That's where Paul goes in chapter 4. It's true for every sinner. In chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You who have put your trust in Jesus, you are at peace with God. There's no enmity anymore. Sin has, the barrier that sin created between you and God has been wiped out. It's gone. Like the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Paul says, while we were still sinners and enemies of God, when we were helpless to reconcile ourselves to God, Christ died for us. It's all Him. Then in the second half of chapter 5, Paul contrasts two men. Through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned in Adam and all sinned in the likeness of Adam. And through one man, Jesus, the perfect sinless man who is also perfect God, the gift of justification of a righteous standing in the eyes of God is freely given to all who believe. It's a gift. If it's not a gift, you'll never have it. And neither will I. Beloved, it is not, Paul says this with crystal clarity at the end of chapter 5, Romans, he says, it is not many righteous acts that justify a sinner. It is the one righteous act of the only righteous man who ever walked this earth. It is his perfect sacrifice in our place that makes us righteous in the eyes of our perfectly holy God. Nothing else will do. Romans 5 ends with this stunning declaration. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll tell you now, I'm going to keep you till at least five after, maybe a few minutes after that, so just accept it. <laughs> Beloved, this is an astonishing truth. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's the word Paul used. Superabounded. And Paul knows very well, Paul who, who's great at anticipating crazy questions and objections, he knows very well where our, our old nature will immediately go with such a proclamation. And he deals head on with the objection that he knows is coming. He begins chapter 6 with two questions and then a forceful answer to both. The two questions are really one. And that question is, if everyone who believes in Jesus receives a perfectly righteous standing in the eyes of God as a free gift, 
Wow, if grace superabounds where sin abounds, well, why not sin all the more? So there can be more grace. Why not treat this absolutely free gift as an absolutely unlimited license to sin? That's where the old nature goes. And Paul's answer comes first in the form of a forceful negative followed by another simple question. He says, may it never be. That is the strongest negative declaration available in the Greek language. It's as if you or I said, that is unthinkable. It is unimaginable. How could you say such a thing? And then he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, it's amazing what we do with this. We tend to think, okay, Paul says, may it never be. So what we expect is for Paul to say, anybody that would ask that question, man, they're so dead they can never be saved. What does he say? He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That simple question sets the stage for the rest of God's answer in all the rest of Romans chapter 6. And that answers where we're going to spend a little bit of our time this morning. After asking the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul proceeds to tell us what makes it true that every believer has in fact died to sin. His explanation is all about the real baptism that we Christians celebrate every time we immerse a professing Christian in water and raise that Christian back out of the water in Jesus' name. Paul says, or do you not know? Romans 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. When you came to faith in Christ, you died with Christ. And God raised you up into resurrection life right here, right now, spiritually. You died and you had been freed from sin. And that's the punchline to this passage right there. He who has died is freed from sin. There are no doubt a bunch of people in this room who struggle to believe that declaration, that it apply, they, to, to believe that it applies to you personally. You know your own track record, not just your lousy performance, but the, but the thought life that feeds that lousy performance. Thoughts you'd never want anyone else to know about. You're not alone. I'm right there with you. You still wrestle with some sins that you've been wrestling with ever since you came to faith in Jesus. So the promise sometimes feels more like a platitude than a promise. Maybe it applies to somebody, but doesn't seem to apply to you, right? Do you know that the very first imperative, the very first command in the whole book of Romans is in Romans 6 verse 11. 
Six chapters of magnificent gospel truth declaring how sinners, rebels, enemies of God like you and me get declared perfectly and forever righteous in the eyes of God. And then there's this command. Even so, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of warm-up. And then three more equally forceful imperatives immediately on the heels of the first. Therefore, because these things are true, and you are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul's talking to Christians. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is theology on fire, beloved. This is why theology exists. This is why doctrine, this is why the Bible is full of teaching to save sinners and to transform the lives of saved sinners so that we look and act like our Savior. In Matthew 3, when Jesus came to John the Baptist asking to be baptized by him, John was understandably shaken to his core. He tried to change Jesus' mind. He said, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? And Jesus answered John saying, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying us, you and me, John, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As John immersed in the water, the one whose sandals he was unworthy to untie, the water of the Jordan River, and then raised him up out of that water, John and Jesus were together setting in motion the outworking in real space and time of a glorious decree of God that had been pronounced before anything existed except our triune God. God had decreed before the foundations of the world to create a people for His own possession. To make that people holy as He Himself is holy through the atoning death and glorious resurrection of His own beloved Son because He knew what would happen in the garden before it happened. And to dwell with that people in perfect relationship and communion for all eternity in the place that His Son went to prepare for us. Jesus' baptism was God-ordained. It was a visible, tangible proclamation and celebration in advance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Fully immersed in water to picture His death. Raised out of the water to picture His resurrection. It would be through that death and resurrection that, bap that baptism, that picture, started what would fulfill all righteousness. That's why the Son of God had to be baptized. But Jesus didn't make those who trust in Him righteous later. He made us righteous now. Not only in position, but by His intention also in practice. In Romans 3, after declaring that there's no such thing as a righteous human being, that there's no man who seeks after God. There's no one good. After declaring that the law of God closes every mouth and leaves every man accountable to God, Paul said this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been put on display. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, how? As a gift by His grace. That's what you call repetition. As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation, a perfectly satisfying payment to God for our sin in His blood through faith. Beloved, the whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of God given to sinful human beings, not only in position, but also in practice. After all the marvelous theology about ungodly, undeserving sinners made righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus alone, Paul now says, okay, people, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God and live accordingly. Why? Because you have died to sin and you have been raised to newness of life in Christ. You are identified with Him in His death and resurrection. If you've been baptized in the public ceremony of believer's baptism, one of the beautiful truths that God intended that baptism to picture, proclaim, and celebrate is that sin no longer has power over you. No longer has any power over you. Beloved, you and I have been set free. And it's all God's doing. It is not yours. And so God now commands you to count that as true and to live accordingly. He's not asking you if your track record bears this promise out. He's not asking you how you feel about it. He's commanding you and me to believe it, to count it as true every single day, and to act accordingly. If you believe that sin controls you, you will never overcome sin. If you are convinced of the promise of God and you count it as true day by day, that sin has absolutely zero power to control you. That is the liberation that enables you to live in a manner that is worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this miserable flesh, I live, how? By faith in the Son of God who delivered Himself up for me. So how do you live this out? Very simple. You believe God's promise more than you believe your own senses. More than you believe your own logic. More than you believe anything else. You, you look at what God has declared to be true and He says, I saved you and I gave you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and I have liberated you from the power of sin. Do you believe me? That's what God is saying to us. Amen. And this is all about how we actually live day by day. Uh, and so Paul says, don't go on giving the members of your body over to unrighteousness. That doesn't even match up with your nature anymore. You've been recreated in holiness and righteousness of the truth in Christ. So live like that. Be who you are, not who you aren't. 
We live with the very first imperative in the book of Romans ringing in our ears. That's how we should live. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God because you are. Dear Father, we ask that you would make this, <laughs> you would sear this into our hearts and into our souls so that we can't walk away from it. We can't keep convincing ourselves of something that is simply not true. Father, we ask that you would teach us, you would continue the good work of your Spirit in us to will and to work for your good pleasure, and you would convince us, our, our foolish hearts, you would convince us that this liberty is actually ours that we might walk in a manner worthy of our calling and we might, Father, we might show Jesus off in this world so that many, many would be saved even through us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.